everyone. My name is Ryan Stacy, and welcome to the Hockey Minds Podcast. This podcast is powered by Instat, the leader in video and data analysis. Instat Hockey supports all levels of our game worldwide with video breakdowns and or scouting services. For more information, visit Instat on the web at instatsport.com or on Twitter at Instat Hockey. Before starting the podcast today, I'd like to take a moment to send some positive thoughts to Noah Dugas, who is battling some major health issues as of recently. If you haven't already, be sure to reach out and show your support, as Noah looks to get back on the ice and playing the sport that he loves. Looking at the podcast today, I'll be joined by Spiro Sinastas, the head coach and director of hockey operations with the Brampton Beast. Spiros is a knowledgeable and experienced coach who has taken a unique path to be in the position he currently holds. With a drive for success and a personable approach, he exhibits the key character traits of a successful hockey mind, and I am glad to have him join me today. With that, I am happy to present Spiros Anastas, the head coach and director of hockey operations with the Brampton Beast. Today we're joined by Spiros Anastas, the head coach and director of hockey operations with the Brampton Beast. Spiros, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Excited to get uh, get to know you a little bit here and, uh, you know, answer some questions for you. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I looked at your background, like this is really our first time getting to meet each other, but um, I was intrigued by a number of your experiences and I think there's a lot to learn from your stories. So I think the listeners will be very excited and interested to hear about your career. So start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, including where you're from, and also speak to your involvement in sports throughout your youth. Uh, yeah, so I, I was born in right in, in Toronto, in the city of Toronto, and uh, grew up in a couple of, couple of different places, uh, first out in Ajax and eventually Scarborough, and then uh, into my teenage years, we ended up in Mississauga. Uh, as a kid, I was heavily, heavily involved in sports. Uh, we didn't have a very well-off family, uh, but one thing that my, my parents always did for us and sacrificed for me especially was uh, the ability to take in those experiences of being involved in sport, uh, pushing yourself, uh, keeping yourself accountable, but also working in a team environment. And it was something that my parents put a, a big importance on. So uh, in spite of, you know, whether it was financial troubles or family troubles or anything growing up as a, you know, a young kid, uh, that was something that they always put a priority on. So I was really thankful and grateful for that. Uh, I played every sport from soccer, basketball, volleyball, football in high school. Uh, baseball was probably my best sport growing up. And then obviously fell in love with the game of hockey, um, you know, through the guidance of my father as well. But, uh, you know, non-traditional background in terms of the hockey. Uh, you know, we, I'm a first-generation Canadian in my family, first one born here. Uh, my parents immigrated to... Toronto, my father, and New York, uh, my mother. And my dad fell in love with the game pretty early when he was here. He was about five years old, and he started playing himself and played some low-end junior hockey and continuously plays to today. But uh, it's something that became part of our own culture uh, and, and the fabric of our family, that uh, sports, especially hockey, was something that we all loved. So that's kind of how I got involved in the game. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love all kinds of sports. Obviously hockey is my profession and what keeps me, uh, you know, providing for my family, but, um, you know, there's nothing that, that I don't give a chance, at least in the sporting world, uh, even beyond the major, major sports. Yeah. I was interested to hear your perspective on that because I say it time and time again, you know, you, you gravitate towards sports in your youth and obviously people who are involved in hockey or whatever profession they may be, they obviously, 
um, gravitate towards that sport through their youth. But I think another point that you brought up is, uh, you know, about the parents' support. And uh, we see that for kids just trying to play house league or, or trying to get into it more. And even at the highest AAA levels, there's always a part of sacrifice, whether it's money, time, um, you know, just attention. There's so many different sacrifices that have to be made. And um, it's a key point to bring up during those youth years. And it's interesting to hear your story about it. And then obviously, um, you know, being in hockey, still having that passion for multiple sports. You touched on how you played football, basketball, volleyball, all these different sports. So it's great to hear that you um, were, you know, multi-purpose and, and able to experience all those different things. Uh, you attended multiple schools in programs involving economics, business administration, and accounting and sport administration. Walk us through your university college experience and how it ultimately uh, prepared you to work in sports uh, moving forward. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, through grade school and high school, I think I was that typical guy that you uh, you see that obviously is is fortunate to do really well in school and get good grades and uh, you know ace a test or a paper, but uh, was that guy that just didn't do anything to you know get better at it. Uh, you know, school is a struggle at times for me in the sense that I couldn't meet the expectation of teachers. Um, you know, I got distracted easily. And I think sometimes because things were easy for me, um, it just, I, I, I put it on the back burner a lot. So I, I made it through grade school and high school easily and always had good grades, but it wasn't something that overly interested, was in, interesting for me. Uh, so obviously playing junior hockey, I took that break from schooling. And I went to the University of Guelph for a year, um, you know, suffered an injury while I was there. So I didn't, that was my only season while I was playing that I didn't get any games in, uh, due to injury. But, you know, it was a kind of a wake up call for me because hockey wasn't there anymore. And, uh, you know, I had to focus on school and I, I didn't do the best there because I think I tried to treat it like high school. So thankfully for me, I had another year of uh, junior hockey so I went back and played my 20 year old year and eventually ended up in the states at Lebanon Valley College and I took it with a lot different approach then I and, it, and that's the unique thing about college compared to high school you're able to pick and choose what you're interested in and even within a business a general business degree or an accounting degree you can pick courses that fulfill your requirements but are ones that you're more interested in things that you'd like to learn about so that's where I really I think started to excel as a student and I you know, by no means did I, you know, completely turn into a great studier or somebody that, you know, was 100%, you know, in every, every class, but uh, I started to appreciate the value of it a lot more. So, uh, you know, some of those classes, you know, the, I don't work in business, obviously, but I think everything around us in, in the world, especially in hockey, is relative to things that we learn in those business degrees and economics degrees. Um, you know, we we manage people. So organizational business, we're constantly selling. Uh, so marketing, self-branding, uh, you know, we manage salary caps and contract negotiations. So the accounting, the economic side, um, it's amazing how much I actually put into use in my career today. And while I, you know, don't work in finance and while I don't own my own business, uh, some of those lessons I taught in terms of time management, how to speak to people, the different kind of learners, different kinds of employees, really helped me as a coach, I believe. And then I was fortunate to get into a master's program where I could connect the business to sport, uh, Canisius College, the sport uh, administration program, and then can really make that link. And then, uh, you know, that was while I had started my coaching career. So it was really good for me early in my career to really make that link and see how everybody at the end of the day is the same and everything, every team is the same, whether it's a team in an office or a team in an arena. 
uh, how you manage the people and the relationships you build is what dictates their success, their confidence, and ultimately the team's success in achieving their goals. So I use a lot of the stuff I learned. Uh, you know, I was fortunate to have some really good professors and really I was part of really good programs, but I use it uh, every day and sometimes subconsciously too. It's not that I every day say I got to pull back from my intro to business class on, on this situation, but I think subconsciously it's been ingrained in me and uh, you know, it, it is, I, that's why I'm a big proponent of education too. Definitely. And, you know, you talk about all those different skills, there are transferable skills and really whatever kind of area you go into. And obviously you being in hockey, there's so many different things that you can take from a business degree or an accounting or, or economics or whatever it may be. And um, it's always good to, you know, experience it and learn it while you're there because you never really know where you're going to end up and, and how you can use those skills moving forward. Uh, you got your first opportunity to coach while attending school. Talk about how you found yourself coaching in both Lebanon Valley and Western Michigan and what you learned in those first couple of seasons. Yeah, so I kind of became a coach by default. It was a kind of a tumultuous year for us and our coach had been let go after the first semester. And I was in my senior season, I was a captain at the school and I suffered a somewhat season ending injury. I, maybe I could have found a way to come back to finish the second semester, but it was, the writing was on the wall and that was pretty much the end of hockey for me. So our athletic director promoted the assistant coach and asked if I wanted to come on the bench and just be a positive presence. And at that time, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Coaching actually probably wasn't something at the top of my list. I had done some internships in Bay Street uh, in finance and I worked with an agency one summer. Uh, I thought maybe that I would give it a go at that with the NHLPA certified agency. Um, but, you know, coaching kind of got thrown my way and I learned really quickly that I really loved the impact you can make at that level of the game. Uh, and, you know, I was really raw. I had no idea what to expect or, or what to do as a coach, but I really focused on just finishing a tough season the best way we possibly could. So what I w did there was just make sure everyone was having a better experience. And I kind of just learned about the relationships and how far they go and just making sure when people are comfortable and confident, how much better they can do and how much more they can, accomplished so it was by default as a young 24 year old that I got into coaching but I learned such a valuable lesson in that first half season um, that I still lean on today about the experience of the athlete or the student athlete uh, should be the paramount factor in their performance when you're facilitating performance because I wasn't going to go into that first job just gung-ho with X's and O's because I probably hadn't known enough and I didn't learn enough about being a coach. I kind of just fell into that position. So I went into it with just making sure guys were happy. And it's just amazing that, you know, 11 years later where I, I, I feel like I've learned a lot and I'm continuously learning and I know I can teach more in terms of the game, making sure my guys are happy is still my priority. So it's, uh, it's funny how, how I kind of learned that by mistake, but it's something that's kind of deep into the fabric of my coaching style. Yeah, there's always little things, and you touched on the fabric of your coaching style. There's little things that you pick up early on, and, and there's always different things. Obviously, yours was just making sure people are okay, and they're happy, and they're comfortable in their position, and sometimes it's those little parts of your coaching technique that, um, you know, looking 10, 15, 20 years down the road, there's a lot of changes been made, but at the same time, you still stuck to your guns in that one area and, um, you know, used it to progress uh, in the industry. Uh, in 2012, you had a great opportunity to work in the BCHL. How was that step into junior hockey and speak to your experience working in the BCHL? Yeah, it was interesting. Like my first couple of years of 
my coaching career a little bit of a whirlwind going from my alma mater, Lebanon Valley College, for a year and a half and then making the jump to Division One. I was hired at Western Michigan by, by Jeff Blaschel, um, and it was exciting to make that connection. But two weeks after I arrived in Kalamazoo, he, he left for the Detroit Red Wings to become their assistant. And then I was fortunate to work under Andy Murray at Western. And uh, it was a lot of fun, learned a ton. We won a CCHA championship there. And all plans were to return for another year there. And I was kind of the junior assistant. I was the you know, fourth coach on the depth chart. And you know, I just did everything that I was told to do and, and, and provide as much value as I could and continuously learn as a 26-year-old coach, my first time being at what people consider a, a high level. Um, but you know, after graduation, you can only stay one year on an OPT visa. There were some visa issues. And Andy and Western Michigan tried everything they could. And, it looked like it might happen, it might not. Come September, still weren't sure. Um, so we, um, Andy had a connection in Port Alberni and I had done a, a hockey camp there that summer through connecting, um, you know, through Andy and his, his mutual contact. And then the job, uh, GM job with the uh, Alberni Valley Bulldogs came open and it was just a safe bet. Like we didn't know, if, I didn't want to be left without a job so soon uh, because of visa issues. So. While it was kind of an unplanned position, I, I ended up moving to you know Port Alberni, British Columbia. I knew that it was a great league. It was one of the big recruiting pools for the NCAA. At that time in my career, I thought that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an NCAA coach. So, you know, to get immersed into a recruiting pool for the NCAA could really bring value to me in the future if I wanted to get an assistant coaching job at a, at a program. Uh, you know, knowing, getting to know the players, the teams at that level. And even in the BCHL, you do some dealings with USHL, NAHL, you know, cross-border trades and stuff like that. So I thought it was a really great position for me. I ended up there. Um, it was my first time in the short career, you know, focusing just on general man manager duties. We made some great trades. Uh, we brought in some good players. We had a good training camp. We built a really good team that won uh, the division title that year. Uh, but lo and behold, out of nowhere, three months into the season, um, you know, I got a call from Jeff Blaschel, who, who hired me uh, at Western Michigan. And typically in the American League at that time, or at least in Grand Rapids, it was just a head coach and one assistant. And if you look at today's uh, rosters and, and coaching staffs in the American League, there's, you know, there's not many teams that, that do that. Most of them have two assistants. Some of them might even have three and a goalie coach. Uh, so Blash had... had been moved from Detroit to Grand Rapids to uh, take the head coaching job there and he had had one assistant coach and I think after a month went by they decided they wanted a lot more they wanted to do more with their staff and have more resources available and somebody that can do some extra work so the American League season had already been a month in and obviously at that point there's not many coaches available uh, so Blash called me because I, I think I, you know, I did an okay job interviewing with him for Western Michigan. He asked if I'd be interested. So at that point, I was kind of faced with a pretty tough decision of staying in a really good league where a young guy like me can develop amongst the players there in the BCHL or taking a, my first pro coaching job. So it was a pretty easy decision, uh, although it, you know, it was tough in the moment. But uh, I decided to go to Grand Rapids and make the three-day drive back to uh, southwest Michigan, uh, where I just pretty much moved from, and uh, you know, start my pro career there. But the BCHL was definitely unique. It was my first time, um, you know, kind of putting a team together and being part of the front office and having some additional duties, uh, you know, business side duties, ticket sales duties as well. So it was really cool to just get a glimpse of that because, uh, you know, unknowingly at the time, uh, 
you know, into the future of my career uh, in this youth sports and ECHL level, those were uh, skill sets that I really needed and, and still use today. So it was good to get the glimpse of that. And when I moved to Grand Rapids, it was, um, you know, it was a welcome decision. Every, everyone supported it. So it wasn't a tough move in sense. And I still helped them uh, from afar a little bit as well. So uh, it was an easy transition, but I was really fortunate at 27 years old to get that, that American League chance. Definitely. And, you know, just touching on the BCHL role, it's one of those things where you kind of went into a new situation, obviously, maybe not having as much managerial experience as coaching experience, but still taking that opportunity when it presented itself. And you learned a lot and you touched on being able to touch on the business side. And, you know, in ECHL, that's obviously something that a lot of teams uh, will see those dual purpose roles. So having that initial, um, you know, launching pad to kind of test out your skills and see what you need to learn is, is very important. And then, Obviously, from it, you you got a great opportunity to move uh, to the AHL. So, talk about uh, what that first season was like in that position, and um, then lead into maybe talking about the experience of winning a Calder Cup. Yeah, so the first season was interesting because again, I was in a position where I was one of the youngest coaches in the league, uh, probably the lowest paid coach in the league too. Uh, it was more of an opportunity for me that you know I couldn't say no to. But when I went there. Uh, you know, my head was spinning when I was standing on the bench at ice level, watching that pace of play. And that was a lockout year. So, you know, I think one of my first games on the bench, I, we were against the Oklahoma City uh, and they had Taylor Hall, Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Uh, I think Amberly was was playing. So like it was, you know, the entire future Edmonton Oilers roster and it was so fast. So it was definitely not something I was used to. It was another season of a lot of learning. It was similar to my first time stepping behind the bench at Lebanon Valley College. Um, you know, I couldn't go in there gung-ho, like trying to prove myself as something I wasn't. I couldn't go in there and, and be, you know, a hard ass or, or try and pretend like I knew everything. So for me, it was just absorb as much as I can and work as hard as I can. So I took a lot of direction from Jeff Blashill and Jim Pack. And, uh, you know, it was Blash's first time as a pro head coach. Jim Pack had been there for nine years with the Griffins, so it was great to have him there. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying to learn on the go. So I, I worked heavily on the video side, some analytics side, and, uh, you know, just really focused again, not to, you know, be a broken record, but really focused again on building those relationships. Um, you know, I went in there as a 27-year-old who had never played at that level. There were guys that were, you know, almost 10 years older than me in the, in the locker room. There were guys who were the same age as me. Even the younger guys, the 19, 20-year-olds, are guys that played at a level that I never even got close to. So I needed to find a way to provide value. How can I provide value to these guys on a daily basis? So, yes, I was great at video. I was able to show them things and, and present them with tangible uh, materials of how they can improve their game. But at the same time, what else could I do for these guys? So what I really worked on was building those relationships. And, you know, How do I approach a veteran that's in the American that's got NHL experience? Um, you know, just talk to him, ask him for advice, uh, ask him for his opinion. Uh, and that's what I did a lot of. And the Europeans in the room, uh, you know, I might not be from the Czech Republic or from Russia, but I'm of a European background. So I know what it's like to be raised in kind of, you know, Eastern European culture. So I, I tried to make a link between me and those guys to just know that we have probably similar grandmothers and similar parents and similar foods. So that's what I really spent that first year was just kind of building those relationships as much as possible. And I think that paid dividends for me coming into my second year where my responsibilities grew because I built trust within the, the, the coaching staff, but more so I built trust within the room. They knew me as a person, as a person who cared, as a person that uh, was there for them. 
And then I was really able to then work on my craft a lot more on the X's and O's side as well. So it was a, it was a whirlwind of a season. When I uh, joined the Griffins, they were one, eight and one. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't looking great in the first month, but uh, we went on some great runs. We had some great people, a lot of help from the Detroit Red Wings, uh, great coaching staff. And we just, uh, we won that Calder Cup, and it was surreal for me because I the year before we won a CCHA championship which, with Western Michigan University, and that was really the first major championship I had ever won. Uh, and to do that in my only third year of coaching was amazing. But then to go back to back and win another one in the American League level, it was just uh, something that you know I, I had to pinch myself, um, you know, if it was really happening or not. But it was an incredible experience, and those are things you never forget, and those bonds you build being a champion with uh, fellow coaches and even the players you coach, they never go away. And uh, yeah, I was really thankful that I got that experience so early in my career. Yeah, definitely. And like, you know, being tossed into a situation and, and really just doing everything you can to add value and then having that end result that just kind of goes to show that hard work pays off. And, um, you know, I, in a similar way that I kind of did an internship with the Growlers and was fortunate to be there when they won. Uh, it's one of those opportunities to kind of see how a winning organization works and, once you get that taste of, um, you know, reaching that level, you just want to keep going and you never want to let go of that. So I'm sure that obviously fueled you uh, moving forward as a coach and uh, as a manager. Uh, one of the well, more, you, go ahead. That's what it, that's what it was for me too. Cause I, previous to that, I didn't know what I wanted to be with, with the coaching career. I didn't know if I wanted to stay in pro, but just the constant pursuit of something to be, you know, chasing great, chasing greatness. And uh, you know, there's one of, the models in the Red Wings organization from Mike Babcock down Jeff Blaschel just choose to be great every day or take steps towards greatness. Um, it just, that really is what flipped the switch for me to, to want to do this for the rest of my life and try and get to the highest level possible. Uh, when you get that feeling of winning a championship and those people that say winning is developing, it's so true. And uh, although I, to this day, I say I was just a small part of it, just like you said, you got, I got that taste. And then from then on, all I wanted to do was win. So it's, uh, I'm again, thankful I, I got to experience it young because I focused every day since then. Yeah. Winner. Definitely. Definitely. That's, I think that's a great point. And for anybody that's won a championship at any level, I think they, they would say the exact same thing. Um, looking further into your resume, one of the more unique experiences is a coaching position with the Korean ice hockey association. Uh, talk about your role there and discuss your opinion on the state of hockey and hockey culture uh, with those players in that organization. Yeah, it was, that was a really unique and fortunate experience for me. Um, as I mentioned, Jim Pack was the other assistant coach in Grand Rapids. So we both left uh, the Griffins in the same season. And, uh, you know, I'd taken the University of Lethbridge job to get my first head coaching experience. And he left to take the Korean national job. And he's a Korean background and was actually born there uh, so he was really excited for the four-year build-up to the Olympics so uh, it was at my wedding actually that he had notified me that and he kind of we got to talking about what my schedule was like in in youth sports and I said you know you win the whole thing you're done kind of second week of March uh, so it's a very short condensed season even if you go very far and and I knew going in that we probably weren't going to win the, the whole thing because I took over a struggling program so we were done in February so he'd asked me at that point I was willing to help him out. Uh, so that's how I got linked on with the Koreans. I was his assistant coach with the men's team and the head coach of the U18 team. And it was an eye-opening experience for both of us. So we went there and Jim, uh, Jim was kind of the director of all hockey. He also brought on Richard Park, another former NHLer, to be his other assistant. 
And we just kind of, we were there that August, August 2014, and just evaluated what we need to work on. And we knew we had to, a lot of work to do with making Korean hockey a better defensive mentality game. Um, you know, they're really skilled players, uh, really fast. They're strong. They're built. They got, you know, hard shots. They can do it all offensively. But the thing there is that, you know, most of what they watch in Korea it was, was highlights. Uh, so they just all just skill-based. They... Um, you know, they believed in a five-person attack, which is great, but it was like five people playing forward. They, there was really no defenseman. Um, so we really had to work on things like stick on puck and 200-foot games and body positioning, box outs, sprinting to pucks or breakout posture. And that was a unique challenge because, you know, Koreans had had some success, not a lot, but whenever they had success in their you know, respective, respective groups at the IHF level, is when they won, you know, eight to six, six to five, you know, you know, nine, eight in a shootout. And that's the only way they won, simply by scoring more goals than the other team. But, you know, obviously we know you can't just do that. Uh, so we really focused those first two years on developing the defensive game. The culture there, uh, not just hockey culture, just the culture in general, they're very, for lack of a better term, they're very obedient, very obedient culture. So you know, sometimes that was refreshing as a coach because the kids, especially the U18, you know, what, what the coach said was golden. Uh, you know, they were so willing to learn. They, everything you said, they'd bow and, and do and work really hard at. They're very resilient, hardworking um, people. And, uh, you know, at first what thought, we thought would be a big challenge to get them on board with the new, the new kind of way to play uh, actually turned out not being that difficult at all because they were so willing to learn. Uh, so it was really cool, uh, you know, putting myself in that culture and learning about them while they were learning about what we were trying to teach. And then within that first year, we won the gold medal at the Division One B level um, with the men's, and we won the gold medal with the U18s at the D2A level. And it was phenomenal. We didn't put, let up a lot of goals. We scored a lot of goals. So we really taught them in that moment to how to utilize their offensive ability from the goal line out. And uh, I think that just made them a really good team. And then I didn't get to stick through to the Olympics, but as you saw, you know, they, they held up. I know they didn't win any games, but they had some really close games against teams like Norway uh, and the, you know, the lower end teams. And uh, they showed well in the, the world championships leading up to the Olympics. So I was really happy to be a small part of that as well. Definitely. And it's just another experience that you can obviously learn something from. And, uh, you know, there's a very short list of people who can say they've been thrown into a position like that and and to see, you know, um, such an, like you said, an obedient and responsive group uh, at a young age, just willing to learn and learn something completely new to maybe what a lot of them were taught in the past or the style of game or whatever it may be. It's just, it's refreshing to hear and um, something I'm sure that you'll look back on for a number of years and think, wow, I was a part of that. I got to experience that. Um, you touched on the University of Lethbridge a little bit, and that was the next experience I was going to get into. Uh, speak to the opportunity to go back to university hockey, and what were some of the differences in your coaching style uh, this time compared to maybe your earlier experience? Yeah, no, I was fortunate to, uh, you know, be notified of, about that job, uh, you know, through Mike Babcock and Bill Peters. They were with Detroit at the time, and uh, I was with Grand Rapids, and everyone knew I wanted to be a head coach, but at 28, 29 years old, those opportunities don't come very easily. Um, but they both coached there uh, at the start of their careers, so it was a, a, a pretty good in and two good references to have. Uh, so that happened pretty quickly, and uh, you know, I took that job, and I knew they were a struggling 
team. They, you know, over the, the course of three or four of the previous years, they, they were in single digits for wins. I think winning one season, they only won two, you know, a couple of seasons, they only won three. So we knew the expectations weren't high going in, uh, but it really stretched and tested me as a coach. I'd never been a head coach. Um, I thought it was a perfect position uh, to go learn because all you could go was up in that program. And it was a small market team in, in new sports hockey. So there wasn't a lot of media scrutiny or, or many people hanging on every mistake that you made. And I definitely uh, made a lot of mistakes. And it was really a good spot for that, for my development, because again, there weren't that many people watching. So, uh, you know, I went in there, you know, what I learned in this first year, especially is, you know, we all, we're all products of our mentors and our experiences. But if you try to just kind of copy or mimic uh, people you look up to, uh, you know, you don't have a ton of success and you don't teach effectively. Um, so I learned that I, I went in there, th you know, with all the things I taught or I learned from, uh, you know, Andy Murray and Jeff Blaschel and, and my small experiences at training camps with, you know, Mike Babcock. And I tried to just regurgitate that stuff. I, I believed that I had known it well enough to, to just teach. And what I learned really quickly is, you know, obviously we're in a profession where we steal things all the time but you really got to make it your own and understand it hundred percent to be able to teach it and make other people buy into it. So that was kind of the whole learning process. My first year is taking everything I'd learned from some of these great mentors, but making it into my own, making some tweaks to it. So it fits the personnel that I have, uh, you know, adapting it to fit the, the long-term vision I had for the university of Lethbridge pronghorn program and how we can become a respectable team from a team that everyone had kind of given up on. Uh, so that whole first year was a learning process. And I don't think there are many leagues or opportunities you can do that in. And that was the great thing about coaching U sports to get my first head coach start there is because I was able to do that. Uh, we, we improved from two wins the previous year before I got there to five wins in my first year. And while that's nothing exciting, um, it was an over 100% improvement, right? So we, we did some great things. But in, in that year alone, I had learned so much about myself and what it actually takes to be a head coach and the difference between being an idea man where you're just throwing so many things at the wall, hoping one thing sticks to being the guy that the buck stops with, uh, where you have to make a decision and it's going to stick and it's going to be on you. So that was the great part of that first year that I got to experience that, but thankfully being in a position where, you know, I didn't have people, you know, down my throat, you know, on every mistake that I made, because I definitely made quite a bit as a 29 year old first year head coach. For sure. And a number of guests that we've had on here have talked about um, the importance of, you know, going to those roles where, like you said, the decision ends with you and you kind of have the room to make mistakes if you need to. And, and um, you know, touched on being a, like copycat league in the way, in the way it kind of works that way. But uh, at the same time, you know, taking what you've learned, but making it your own and those opportunities are so key. And obviously you're in a pretty good position in the AHL, but uh, it was definitely necessary to, grow as a coach and, and grow as a hockey mind to take that step to NC or uh, sorry you sports and just have that freedom and that room to really express your own ideas and make it your own cycling back to international hockey you also would go on to coach uh, with the Estonia Hockey Association uh, similar to Korea break down that experience and the hockey culture associated uh, with that organization yeah, so that was really interesting, too, because uh, the gold medal that we won with Korea in 2015, uh, the U18 level was in Estonia. So I was fortunate to meet a lot of their delegates and their administration there. And when I stopped with Korea after two years, the main reason was 
because I, I was having children and we had two little boys and I just couldn't commit to the eight to 12 weeks uh, that I'd be gone in the spring. So, uh, and Korea had some other visions of bringing on some Korean coaches that made more sense. Uh, so it was just kind of a mutual decision. And then a couple weeks after it was kind of out there that I was no longer with the Koreans, the Estonians who I'd met a few years back uh, reached out and they really wanted me. They were looking for kind of a, a stopgap coach. They had just released their coach who was a full-time position and they were looking for another full-time coach for the future, but they just wanted to go one year with just a part-time coach. And initially I said, no, um, you know, not interested. I, I left the Korean stuff, you know, just because I need to be spend more time with my family. I do have a full-time job in Lethbridge, so just going to focus on that. But they kept hounding me. They kept readjusting the schedules of the camps. I'd never be there for more than two weeks. Uh, so eventually I said, yeah, like if it's only two weeks at a time, I, we can figure it out. My wife gave me her blessing to do it. But it was a really unique experience because Korea was interesting. There was a huge language barrier, um, but really quickly, you, know, you could really see the power of, of sport because we – we shifted into hockey language. At first, I needed an interpreter with the U18s, uh, but one week in the camp, I didn't need them anymore because the kids understood what I, what I was talking about. While I was saying it in English, they just understood what I meant in hockey, right? Uh, well, I go to Estonia, and I don't have that problem. Everyone there pretty much predominantly spoke English, uh, with the exception of people from a small area uh, called Narva, which is really heavily you know, Russian based and it's an old kind of Russian town in Estonia that's still, you think you're still, you know, back in the old USSR if you're there. Um, but, you know, I, I thought it'd be easier, truthfully. I thought it'd be easier because these kids speak English. A lot of them play hockey in Sweden or Finland, uh, the ones that play domestically. Like English is pretty well spoken in that country, in that area, in the Nordic countries as well. Uh, so I thought it'd be easier. I thought, you know, if I had such success with the K Koreans, this would be a cakewalk. But what I found was, um, there was a real challenge within the culture of the country itself. In Korea, it was all Koreans. All the players were from Seoul. They were Korean as Korean can be, and that was it. Estonia is a really unique country. There's so many people that identify with uh, being with the Nordic countries. There's other that identify with the, the Baltic countries. And there's other that identify with just being completely Russian. And there's other that identify with just, no, we're Estonian. We're our own people. So within that, now I'm coaching four different categories of people. And then within that, guys are playing in Finland, guys are playing in Sweden, guys are playing in Russia, and some are playing right in Estonia. And, you know, there is some friction between Estonian Estonians and Russian Estonians. Uh, you know, we're back going, dating back to the USSR and the history and world wars and stuff like that. So that was the biggest challenge for me. And truthfully, I didn't know how to handle it. I, I went in there looking at them as, as players uh, that had – skill sets and assets and then I was trying to put them together based on those things like this power forward shooter needs to play with this uh, setup centerman and it was a big no-no because that meant that a guy's with the last name Puzakov was playing with a guy with the last name Jurgens, and it didn't fly so that was a real challenge for me within that year we I mean we stayed in our groups and you know I coached the U18 the U20 team and I coached the men's team at a Baltic tournament we we were fine like we didn't win anything we didn't lose anything we just stayed in the group so no regular no relegation no no promotion but we didn't have a ton of success because that was really hard for me that was the first time in my career that I had to deal with conflicts that were beyond hockey um, and uh, you know I definitely underestimated because I thought just the fact that everyone spoke English I could do a better job um, but it was tough it was definitely tough and a real 
unique experience for me and a great learning experience as well. Yeah, that's definitely an eye-opening experience. That is not something uh, you'd usually think about in a situation like that. But I guess, um, you know, being in a different hockey nation, and I'm sure there's situations like that uh, in Canada and the U.S. and all different areas that you kind of have to deal with that conflict. And um, I guess in the larger scheme of things, it kind of just goes to the multiple roles of a coach. Uh, you know, I've had coaches talk about being sounding boards for good players and, and all these different aspects. It's just, um, you know, so much more than just the on-ice product. And obviously a lot of times you can't learn how to deal with it until you're in a situation, like you said, where you are actually, in fact, dealing with it at that point in time. One of the other interesting, uh, almost extracurricular activities that you've had in hockey is working with uh, Hockey Alberta. What is the major difference in working with minor hockey players and uh, especially those who are in their key development ages or going into a draft, et cetera? Yeah, that was the beautiful thing about my time at Lethbridge. Because the season's so short, I was able to do a lot, lot more things and really develop myself as a coach and take that time uh, to seek professional development. So. The Hockey Alberta opportunity was fantastic. I had never coached anyone that was under uh, 17, 18 years old. Uh, so it was a, you know, an opportunity to coach 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds uh, that were in a really unique part of their careers. They, they were all top draft picks in the WHL, a lot of high hope players there. A lot of guys currently are NHL draft picks or NHL players, like guys like Kirby Doc and Bowen. They're going to you know, be NHL players for a long time and Peyton Krebs. Um, but it was definitely an adjustment for me because it was the first time I worked with such an impressionable group um, that was worried about so many things, uh, you know, social media, parents, agents. Um, and they were just didn't have a lot of opportunities to just be kids, you know. And, you know, I was an assistant coach for one year, a head coach for the next year. And, uh it was really eye-opening things to see the pressure that some of these guys go through to kind of pinpoint, you know, which guys were actually probably not going to make it like that. They were just going to burn out uh, because of the pressure that's put on them. And because of, you know, the lack of confidence they have, whether that was instilled by parents or agents or just, you know, general opinion, the things that they went through um, sometimes was actually sad. Ryan. Like it was sad to see that a 15 year old couldn't enjoy the level of hockey and the successes that they had, you know, reached to be part of that team. Um, but it was amazing. So again, you know, again, to, to be repetitive, I just went back to just making sure these kids were comfortable and recognized that it was such a great feat to one, be drafted in the, the WHL as high as they were to be, cons be in the conversation to be a future NHL draft pick three to make the team Alberta team uh, to play in this, you know, tournament against other provinces and, and you know, wear the colors of your province, you know, on your chest, on your back. Uh, and it was more just about that. And what was great is Hockey Alberta was so huge on mental performance, mental coaching, uh, coaching development. Uh, they are, for me, the leaders in Canada for it. And I'm an Ontario guy. Like, I, I, I lived in Alberta for four years. My kids were born there. But I really became kind of ingrained in the, the Alberta-built, uh, you know, motto, and, and, and their beliefs. And, uh, you know, that's their hashtag, Alberta built. But I was fortunate to, you know, we had a coach mentor named uh, Barry Midori there. And Michael Krejci was the director of operations. And that approach, the mental approach was, was it was bigger than X's and O's. We knew these kids could play. There was a lot of emphasis on finding the right mix of people because 
it's hard to have a lot of first line centers on a team that, that needs to win in a short term competition. But uh, that's where I learned a lot about mental performance and how much it can help kids improve their game and also step up to the challenge of, of having to win every game in a, you know, a four game tournament. Uh, so I was really fortunate with Hockey Alberta to see um, their kind of cutting edge and, you know, ahead of the curve ideas on how to get kids to perform. And for the 15 year olds and 16 year olds to take that in, you know, it, it really made me wish that that was, it was like that across the board in every province and every league, leagues like the NHL, OMHA. Um, it was so important and we were thankful uh, that we had those resources. We had a lot of success with those kids and, and for that reason, a lot of them are still playing, um, you know, have great major junior careers, NCAA careers, and a lot of them are NHL property now. So, uh, you know, I give a lot of credit to Hockey Alberta for that. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a key thing to look at. And uh, one of the previous guests on the podcast, Brad Yetman, um, went to school and talked about psychology and, and the mental health aspect. And it's something that he had to look into himself, but it, uh, again, it's just something that should be at almost every level. Like you said, in the province of Alberta, they're obviously big on it. And um, whether it's ECHL, NHL, uh, OHL in Ontario, GTHL, OMHA, Alliance, you know, the list goes on and on. These uh, these teams and these managers should um, look into that and, and obviously imply it in their, or sorry, apply it, sorry, in their gameplay and allow the players to, you know, just relax and understand that when you're at that level, the AAA level or provincial level, um, you know, you should be happy with yourself and you should be, uh, you know, taking it all in for what it is and not, you know, while there should be pressure and you always want to put pressure on yourself to perform to ultimately grow, um, you know, you should appreciate it for what it is and understand the, uh, the hard work that you put in has, has progressed you to that stage. So that's something I think that's very important to look into. Moving to the ECHL experiences, you would assume the role of head coach and director of hockey operations with the South Carolina Stingrays. Um, how did that opportunity come about, and how was your first season in the ECHL? Uh, so I made contact with their president uh, in the summer of 2015. The job had come open. Uh, Spencer Carberry, who now is the head coach at the Hershey Bears, he had moved to the Saginaw Spirit in the OHL. So I just reached out and had a really good conversation with the president. Uh, you know, shared some experiences, talked a little bit. And he'd explained to me then that traditionally the South Carolina Stingrays over the course of their history always just promoted the assistant coach. Um, that's all they did. He was really honest with me. We had, he really liked a lot what I had to say. He, he'd asked if I'd had some interest in the assistant coaching job. I, I, I didn't. I left, you know, the American League as an assistant coach to be a head coach in youth sports. So I, I wasn't going to go down to the ECHL to be an assistant. But it was just a really good conversation. And, and you know, they, they did what they always did. They, they hired their assistant coach, Ryan Warsawski, who now is the head coach in Charlotte. Um, and he did a fantastic job there. But through the course of the next two years, I, I obviously stayed at University of Lethbridge. And I always kind of kept in touch, like, you know, good luck in this playoff series or good luck in the start of the season. And just kind of always sent notes their way and made some good connections there. And then the, uh, the job came open again in the summer of 2018. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, you know, show my interest again. I, I had I had interviewed with the Hershey Bears for an assistant coaching position uh, earlier in the offseason, um, you know, with Spencer Carberry. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't get that job, obviously. And, and then the South Carolina job came open. And I thought maybe, you know, through that interview with Hershey and, and meeting and talking to some of the people with the Washington Capitals, maybe I'll have an in there. I knew going in, like, they've always hired from within. So I didn't have any big expectations. But what was different this time around was there was a new owner and the new owner wanted to 
I guess, put his own little wrinkle on, on the franchise. So for the first time in franchise history, they hired from outside the organization. And that was me. Um, you know, I was the first coach that had previous experience, uh, you know, that, that didn't involve the South Carolina Stingrays or previous pro experience. So it was really unique for me. I got started pretty late. Uh, got started in August. The team was kind of already built. It was an interesting season. For the, the, the most part, we were in second place, uh, you know, always kind of right there. Never kind of got too close to first place, but we were always in second place through the entire of the season, going through the all-star break. Um, you know, we were sitting in a pretty good position. We had a really young, young decor. The previous year, they had a record-setting franchise uh, uh, regular season, uh, but they got swept in the first round. And there was a real mentality from the previous coach that they needed to get faster, younger, uh, you know, healthier. Um, so they, we went that way, and we had a really young decor. And uh, come February, you know, with a lot of other factors kind of that came through, we went on a really bad losing streak. We, uh, we lost 10 in a row, uh, so that was a real learning experience for me. First time I, I was, you know, in that position where I had to kind of stay calm and stay steady on the rudder and get the guys to bounce out of that and, and, and you know, get – to playing and focusing on the positives. Um, and ultimately we finished in third place. We made the playoffs. Uh, we lost in the first round four games to one, um, but we went on an incredible run to finish the season. After that 10 game losing streak, we finished 11, five and one to solidify third place and, and get our playoff berth. But it went right down to the wire the last weekend. Um, but it was, a, it was just, it was interesting. Uh, we got eliminated, you know, in five games. And three days later, I was let go from my position. That was the first time I was ever fired in my job. I, I, I think I always expected that it was going to happen eventually uh, in my career. Uh, you know, you'd be pretty naive not to think it's going to happen if you're a hockey coach. But I didn't think it happened when I was a playoff coach in my first year as a pro head coach, as the youngest coach in the entire league. I, 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 so it, it caught me off guard. But throughout the season, there were some, some hiccups with relationships um, you know, personalities clashing, uh, you know, with, you know, management and, and myself and philosophies. And I learned really quickly that, um, you know, people sometimes when they get out of their comfort zone, they, and things, you know, they face a little adversity, they, they need to go back right back to what they, they usually do. So, um, you know, whether it was warranted or not, I, I did think it was unfair. Um, but, it was a great learning experience for me. So I was let go and they ended up hiring the assistant coach who um, probably should have got a job the year earlier because that's, uh, that's what they always did for 25 years. Um, you know, it was a real sad experience for me. I just moved my family from Lethbridge across to, to South Carolina. I had two really young kids, a three and two year old at the time. And it was tough for them to make another move. And it was the first time that I was unemployed. I was fortunate to sign a two year contract to South Carolina. So it wasn't, a question mark of financial uh, you know, strife. It was just a question mark of my career. I was a young coach and I, I needed to stay active. It's not like some of those NHL guys that get let go and they can take a break because they, they're already established. So there's a lot of question marks and a lot of uncertainty. And uh, it was really great to get support from fellow coaches and people in the league and other people I worked with before. You know, a lot of people kind of boosted me up saying, hey, it's way better to get fired as a, a playoff coach than a coach that you know, misses out or finishes in last place. Uh, and, you know, while some of it was a little cliche that everything happens for a reason, uh, within a month and a half, I had, you know, a couple more interviews and a couple different job offers, some overseas, some in North America. 
And then, uh, you know, I got an offer in Brampton, which was really great for my family after moving them, you know, from Western Canada to South Carolina. Now I had a chance to move them back close to home. We're from Mississauga area. and Our parents are there. So, they, you know, great for the grandparents to be, you know, with the kids. So, you know, as much as I hate to admit it, everything actually does happen for a reason, as cliche as that is. But I think it, you know, I was fortunate to have a lot of good connections and a lot of good people that believed that I, you know, in my successes and, and that I was going to be a guy that kept working hard. And that's how I ended up in Brampton and had a really great year this past season. And unfortunately, just got cut short. So, yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, like a broken record, it's an opportunity to learn. Um, you obviously had a great learning experience uh, managing people and also um, being more involved, uh, maybe as a head coach in the hockey operations side of, of a pro franchise uh, or semi-pro or, or however you want to approach it. But, um, you know, like you said, everything does happen for a reason and you went to Brampton and are there now. Uh, just touch on your initial excitement. Obviously, you touched on the opportunity to be closer to family. But um, aside from that, what were you excited about? And uh, how was the role similar and or different to your previous position in South Carolina? Uh, well, it was different. I'll start with the differences. It was different in the sense that there, there was a lot more freedom as the head coach director of hockey operations to, um, you know, try different things, uh, you know, sign different kinds of players, have a different vision for what the organization can look like. Because they've only been in the ECHL for six years, had only made the playoffs twice, I believe, in that, in that six years. Uh, or sorry, five years. Two out of five years they made the playoffs. Uh, so I came in in their sixth year in the ECHL. Um, so there was a lot more freedom there. You know, South Carolina is a, a, an excellent, excellent organization. Like they've been in the league for 26 years. They've made the playoffs 25 times in 26 years. They've had tons of success. So there's no arguing that they do things the right way. But the thing with an organization like that, especially when I'm the only person ever that came from without, from outside their culture, is that they so believe in the way things have to be done because it's never failed for them. You know, I think one year they didn't make the playoffs, but in their minds, it didn't fail. So it was really hard to bring new ideas to the table, have a different vision for the team, have a different style of play. Um, you know, down south is a different kind of demographic. Like they, we got booed off the ice one game. We won 3 nothing against a division rival. We won 3 nothing. We got booed off the ice because there hadn't been a fight at home in six games and that's where I'm getting yelled at you're the worst coach ever you're you know you know not not safe for work terms uh, you know because they thought I was telling my guys not to fight so that was really challenging being in an organization like that that had done the same thing for 25 years coming to Brampton still relatively new only been in the ECHL five years they had one coach for four of those five years um there were still things that needed to be changed or adapted or tweaked so we can have continued success. Uh, so that was really the difference for me. And that was really exciting for me to work, you know, for our president, Carrie Kaplan, our ownership group was great because they were always open to new ideas. Another really exciting thing for me was that Colin Chalk, the co previous coach for four years and Freddie LeMay, the director of hockey operations, um, they had been promoted to, to Belleville. So they're still within technically our organization. They're within our affiliate. They're the guys I'm talking to the most when players are going up and down within our affiliation. Um, and it was really great to be able to, to tap them and their experience and their knowledge because they had done so much work over four years to bring Brampton to a position where it can take the next step. So I was just a benefactor of that. I was able to take the Brampton Beast to the next step. People were open to ideas to take it to the next step, but I also had 
just such close access to those guys that did that, that great work and set me up uh, to have that opportunity. So that was really exciting. And, th and that was aside from the fact that I got to be home and close to home, close to my parents and my in-laws and all that. Um, so it was a really exciting opportunity to just, you know, have some new fresh ideas, work with a great staff, great ownership, great management, and be able to kind of be our own uh, rather than, um, you know, this is the way it is and we're never going to change. And because of that, we had a really great year. Uh, you know, there was a part of the season where we dipped a little bit. There were some big trades from Ottawa for draft picks and Belleville uh, traded some depth so they can really go for their Calder Cup run. And that affected us a little bit because we lost three of our guys overnight. Um, so we dipped a little bit around there, but it was really great because we had such a great ECHL core and we bounced back and we handled all the top teams in the league. We went down and beat Florida eight to two. We beat South Carolina four to one and, and Orlando seven to one. And, and, you know, we beat Toledo, Newfoundland, Cincinnati through the year. So we really thought that if we got into the playoffs, we were going to be a, a, a team to be reckoned with. And again, obviously COVID hit and, and you know, we didn't get to see that through, but um, yeah, it was a really great year for me and a really great bounce back after my first time being fired. For sure. And having the opportunity, obviously, to be more creative and have more room to grow, almost similar to the way where you went to Lethbridge and you had that opportunity to make mistakes and and uh, maybe a little more freedom. It kind of seemed like the same way going from South Carolina to Brent and it was almost an opportunity to make it your own. I know you touched a little bit on this year and obviously it was cut short because of COVID-19, but uh, in your role, maybe just walk the listeners through your daily routine, uh, maybe talk about a game day and then maybe an off day in your role as coach and director of hockey operations. Yeah, there's not too many off days. Uh, you know, we, we do play a lot of three and threes on the weekend. So we off days will typically be on Monday after we've played three nights in a row. And it's actually three games within the course of 48 hours, if you actually do the math, because, you know, like you'll start at 730 on Friday, but you play a, a 1 p.m. or 2 p.m. game on Sunday. Uh, and like, you know, that's, that's not three, three games in three days. It's, it's a lot shorter than that. Uh, so we have, you know, Mondays off occasionally, but it's a grind. Like it's a tough 72 game schedule. You play, you know, sometimes five games in seven nights in three different cities or three games in three nights in three different cities. Uh, you know, it's, it's really tough. Uh, but on practice days, we're in, you know, my, my uh, assistant coach, Duncan Dalmeo, he's, he's fantastic with the work he does with our power play and the defensemen and just skill work in general. Uh, you know, we're in the office 7 a.m. Maybe sometimes it's a little earlier, sometimes it's later, depending on how much sleep we've gotten and, and stuff like that. We both like to get a workout in the morning. We kind of just shoot it a little bit, just back and forth and, uh, you know, talk about our players, evaluate our game, evaluate our, our, our plan for the week ahead and, and sometimes it's a, a pro week with a game on Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. Sometimes we're lucky and it's what we call a college week with only a game Friday, Saturday. So we have a few days of practice in between. Um, but, you know, we kind of evaluate all that and we just put our practice plan together, our video sessions together. And then, you know, we practice at 11, which is a little bit later than most teams at pro. A lot of pro teams will practice at 10, but we're in the GTA and we have guys coming from Oshawa, Hamilton, guys our Stratford uh, commute in so we just give them a little extra time to you know avoid the traffic so we we start at 11 uh, guys show up at 10 and once the guys show up we want Duncan and I want to pretty well be set with practice our practice plan have everything posted our video sessions prepared uh, whether they're individual or team or pre-ice or anything like that because once the guys show up at 10 we really want to be uh, and this goes right back to our first uh, question we really want to be in a position where we can 
really work on our relationships with the guys. And we're not perfect at it. I'm not going to claim that I'm perfect and I'm great at it. There's actually times I'm actually probably pretty bad at it. But we do put an emphasis on getting out in the room, uh, you know, walk around, ask the guys how the drive was, how their family is, how they're feeling, uh, you know, throw a couple jokes left and right. You know, you know, a couple guys are Leafs fans. So get, give them a ribbing about the tough Leafs loss the night before or, or anything like that. Talk about other sports. You know, if the NFL season's in it, you know, there's obviously always a pool or something going on. And there's such an importance about that. I don't remember which coach it was. I, I know it's been told over and over again, but there's such a value in coaching to just putting everything aside, grabbing a cup, cup of coffee and taking a stroll through the locker room. So we try and make that into our day-to-day. And again, I'll reiterate, I, there's times that I'm brutal at it. Like I, I'll, you know, five, six days will pass and I just realize I've just been bunkered up in the coach's office and the only time they see me is for me to rant on a video session. So we're not perfect, but Duncan and I are really great at that. We, we balance each other out and he's phenomenal at, at identifying when I'm going through one of those ruts. So he kind of takes the, the load on it and, uh, you know, really builds those relationships in the room to make sure guys are comfortable. So that that's kind of our, our process leading up to practice. We'll do a pre-ice, some video. We, we go into practice. Um, a lot of times we'll take guys early, do some skill sessions or some functional training uh, to make sure that we, we cover some pieces, uh, maybe special teams. And then we'll, we'll practice. You know, early in the season, we'll go for an hour, maybe an hour and a half in training camp. But typically it's 35, 40 minutes, fast pace and a lot of board time. Uh, really getting what we need to get done and it's interesting because that's all the guys view as work in their mind it's it's that's the work they'll stay on the ice for two hours but it's so key to have the practice to be only 35 40 minutes because then after the practice is is what they think is just optional or fun we're still running little drills and stuff after but they'll stay on there and shoot pucks for hours because it's it's their own decision uh, so the workload, work time, workload is only 35, 40 minutes during the season. And practices are few and far between once you hit January, February. But, uh, and then after, same thing, more relationship building, talking to guys, talking to guys where they can be better, showing them some video, um, you know, starting to talk about our opponents that we're going to face coming up. And then, uh, you know, then you see guys start filing out around 1, 2 p.m. And Dunks and I will stay for another couple hours or so. And, and that's the end of our day. And we go, you know, back to our families. On game days, it depends. There's no set game day routine in the ECHL. Uh, the one that we love is a typical game day, morning skate, either at 10 if you're the home team, 11:15. You could do a, a video session before morning skate for you know, one of your special teams. Go have some lunch, get a workout in, come back to the rink around you know, 2, 3 o'clock, get your other video sessions and stuff ready. Uh, guys start filing in at 5 o'clock, 5.15, power play meeting, 5.20, team meeting. And then you're just ready to go. Uh, but there's so many one o'clock, uh, you know, overnight travel uh, game the next day that, you know, you're always adapting that schedule. Sometimes there's a morning skate. Sometimes there's an optional. Sometimes there's nothing. Sometimes there's a meeting at the hotel. Sometimes you cram all the meetings around five o'clock. It just, cause there's so many things and you start need to evaluating rest and uh, you know, less information sometimes is more. So it changes a lot. And there's times that, Duncan and I for a one o'clock start or a 2 p.m. start we're at the rink at 7 a.m. and I'm doing the pregame meeting at five o'clock still in my gym clothes and I just get in my suit real quick before the game because we've been at the rink all day uh, so that there's no game day uh, kind of set set timing because it's you just have to be adaptable in this league just have to be yeah for sure that's that's a key thing and 
uh, from my experience in the ECHL is definitely uh, adaptability, I think is one of the, the most important traits you can have if you want to be successful in any role. Um, you know, all the way down to the equipment managers, some of those guys work like dogs and, and coaches and obviously players are the same. And uh, to be successful, you have to be adaptable, willing to learn and willing to put in that extra effort. And uh, like you said, the travel schedule isn't always um, as pretty as you'd like it to be, but uh, you make do and you kind of teach yourself to uh, work around us. So I think um, it's very insightful to have, you know, you've kind of talked about that and and for a lot of people who are looking to get into coaching and, and hope to progress, they got to understand that you really do have to put in that effort almost 24 seven if you want to be successful. Um, you talked about, you know, joking around and being light in the dressing room at times and just getting to know people. Uh, on the lighter side of things, a listener question came in and they wanted to hear about your roommate situation uh, this past year on the road. Okay. Uh... Okay, so well, that kind of question must have come from Anthony Fusco, who's <laughs> our, our broadcaster. So it's, um, I mean, typically uh, most teams, the head coach will, will get his own room or a suite or whatever like that. I, I've never operated that way. I've, um, you know, I, I have my own room for the majority of trips. Uh, Duncan actually usually rooms with Fusk, but uh, you know, Duncan's. Uh, you know, a little bit older than me. He's he's 41 years old. I'm 35, and you know, he's a guy I respect a lot with a lot of experience, and he played a lot. Uh, so, so there's definitely a lot of weekends. I'm like, hey, let's take Foos for this weekend or whatever. <laughs> or, or I took Foos for one night, and we won. So then I got to do it again for the next night. And, uh, but you know what, Foos is he's he's awesome. He's he's a really good good broadcaster, and he's a good young guy that's really excitable. Um, so yeah, we room, we change roommates every so often. I've even roomed with dunks before. Um, but there's a lot of fun. Uh, the three of us, whether, whether Fusca's rooming with me or dunks, the three of us are always together. Uh, you know, we're eating together. We're, you know, get ordering food into the hotel room or we're going out. But, uh, the great thing about rooming with Anthony Fusco is you always got, you always got somebody to poke fun at one. Uh, and two, there's a guy, there's not a guy more positive than him. It could be the shittiest situation ever and somehow he pulls out the like well maybe this will happen or maybe this will happen or, or look at it this way this this is going to happen now and uh, sometimes it's annoying it turns into a lot of profanities back his way but uh, you know when you when you sit down and think about it to have his energy and his his optimistic uh, you know kind of approach to things it's really great so uh, you know I didn't room with him every time but it was uh, it was a lot of fun being there and, and I have such a great staff to work with that it makes the hard times a lot better and when you can build those relationships as well it makes those um you know facing adversity a lot easier because you know you got some good people behind you exactly and in life on the road um at any hockey level is obviously a challenge it's something you have to deal with um if you want to be professional as well so it's, it's great to hear about that experience and yes it was anthony that that asked the question <laughs> it was interesting to hear your perspective on that uh, continuing with listener questions what was your favorite moment from this past season in brampton i know it was cut short but is there any one moment that really stood out to you yeah our trip down south was probably my favorite uh you know it was a real test for what our team was going to be uh you know we turned the, the calendar and we're seeing this big trip down south and it was a really welcome time because the weather here wasn't that great so you know the day after new year's day we're, we're flying into orlando but at the same time we're looking at that and it's like okay we're playing the third place team the second place team the first place team uh, back to back to back pretty much um, in the South Division and Florida and South Carolina combined I think only had like nine losses and at home 
not many. I think each of them only had two losses at home. And Orlando was doing pretty well too. They were at a good clip. So we're like, man, this is going to be a real tough three games coming up. And obviously there was the added attention to the South Carolina trip because that's the team that just let me go. And uh, they were having a really great year and they were top of the league. So there was a lot of attention around that. So, um, you know, it's easy to say just beating South Carolina was my favorite moment because, like, who doesn't love the good old, like, you know, redemption story or, or revenge story? But it was way more than about that. It was just really where we kind of came together as a team and really showed what we were about and showed the team that we actually are. And that's where we put ourselves on the map in the ECHL that week. Um, you know, we went in there, we, we crushed Orlando, we crushed Florida. And while the score was closer with South Carolina, like, we dictated that whole game. Uh, and to see the guys buy into that and really have each other's backs and do whatever it took to win for, for the coaching staff, for each other, for, for the Brampton Beast was really exciting. And that's where we kind of got, you know, we just send a message to the league. And, you know, I think at that time, winning those three games put us like fourth in the entire league, uh, second in our division, really close to first. Um, but it was more than just about standing. It was about nobody wanted to face us in the playoffs after that. Um, so that was that was probably my favorite point. And yes, it, it felt really nice to win in South Carolina, but it was more about what the guys accomplished there as a team and how we finally like solidified our identity within the ECHL. I think whenever uh, that question is asked to people, I do it sometimes on the air. Sometimes I'll ask it off the air. A lot of times it comes down to the fact that um, it's a team success thing, or or when a team comes out of a slump or something changes. Um, you know, there's a number of situations in different leagues where that happens, but that's definitely a road trip, like you said, where you're facing the, the one, two, and three seed and then a, a very good team in South Carolina and you're able to have success. It just shows that uh, when everything's clicking and all the players are working towards a common goal and staff and, and everybody is just rolling with that same momentum, uh, goals can definitely be accomplished. Transitioning to the last few questions here for you, a frequent question on the podcast looks into your favorite resources to learn from and reference. Off the top of your head, which initial resources, whether they're books, webinars, um, videos, et cetera, uh, do you look to for ideas and resource? So for me, the best resource, there's the two best resources for me are people and, and the game itself. So, uh, you know, ever since I was, I mean, even before I, I started coaching, but especially when I got into coaching, I loved just finding different ideas from around the world of hockey. So I, I found myself watching lots of European games, uh, Swiss games, KHL, but even, but even obscure ones. Like, you know, Belarus was the only country that was still playing with co when COVID hit. I don't know how many people watched Belarusian hockey, but I did. I watched the remainder of the playoffs to just to get some new ideas and to watch hockey. The Spangler Cup, the uh, Champions League in Europe, like those are two of my favorite tournaments. You know, I'll watch the Spangler Cup games over the World Junior games because the World Junior preliminary games for me are, are meaningless at times, right? So, you know, Spangler Cup, I, I get so many ideas from the game itself. And just re-watching and watching games, I think, is the number one resource. People, too, um, you know, we can read lots and listen to lots, but I think having conversations with people is critically important. I think there's been no better time than this time, uh, the pandemic time, to connect with people. Uh, through these Zoom calls, whether it's podcasts or just coaching groups that get together to share some ideas. This, this is where I've done some of my best learning is because it's it's no longer kind of, you know, teacher to student learning or, you know, it's more peer-to-peer. -peer. It's not mentor-to-peer, it's peer-to-peer -peer learning. And that's where I think people are great resources to talk to guys. Like there's guys that have been on your 
podcast or guys that are going to be on your on your podcast that I've you know I've connected with uh, you know like like uh, Wes and TJ like these are guys that have so many phenomenal ideas and we just share and we you know we get together and we talk, present on a topic and we talk um, it's been phenomenal doing that uh, but more specifically like material resources and stuff you know I always think it's important to read I don't read enough you know I. I every coach says you got to be reading, you got to be reading. And none of them tell you that they have trouble reading as much as they should, you know? So I'm going to be honest with you and say, I don't read. I have two young boys and a wife and this pandemic and they're in the house all the time. So I haven't read as much as I should, but I do read it every time, every chance I get. I love being outside the box. I think only reading about hockey, I think you're not getting enough, right? So studying other sports and other coaches and even watching those sports and trying to see if you can relate them to yours is really important because you can see different defensive schemes and offensive schemes and, and different approaches to how you handle people. Uh, so a couple books that I've really liked, uh, the Bill Walsh book, The Score Can Take Care of Itself, is really great. Uh, War Room, uh, which is kind of based on or based on the career of Bill Belichick. Uh, both those books kind of just show the control that one person can have um, over an organization and changing the culture and having a vision of what things are supposed to be like, like a kind of an our way mentality. Um, is really kind of, you know, inspiring uh, to do. And are the things that I, I don't think I would do that they did 100%, but it's really great to see on that scale. Um, another book that falls in line with that is obviously everyone's probably mentioned it, the Legacy Book of the All Blacks. Um, it's their way. Like, this is, this is our way. This is how we do it, whether you're a veteran or a rookie. Um, but I think that's really important because it, it helps us manage not only how we manage the locker room, but how we can guide our leaders within the locker room to, you know, the approaches they can take. And I try and share these resources with, um, you know, my leadership group and stuff like that. Um, but non-sports books, I'm a really big fan of, of uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, I love his books. I know a lot of people don't really love him because sometimes he has a tough time uh, differentiating between causation and correlation, but I think they're just outside the box thinking, you know, like tipping point blank, uh, David and Goliath. They're just, at least, you know, you don't have to take it all for, you know, fact, but just look at it and just see that there's so many factors and so many things, little things that make big differences uh, that, you know, you can focus on as a person, uh, not just as a coach. So I, I look at those, those a lot. Um, and even just, just resources within my family, my wife, my father, um, you know, my, my father's a, a business owner and he's built his own business himself. So there's a lot of similarities and things you can pull on from some of the trials and tribulations he's been through. And my wife, uh, you know, does really well for herself in her job. And I, I kind of just talk to her more about relationships, how relationships work within her company and stuff like that. So there's, it's, it's never ending, but those are some of the things that I kind of lean on. Um, but, but the game itself and people are important. I think it's so important to pick up the phone and call or send a text message to check in with people because um, those are the people you're going to have those conversations that are provoke thought and help you get better and learn things from and and more importantly share things from uh, you know it's not just a take it's also a give uh, so that's what I've been really fortunate to be able to do during these uh, these unique times I think it's a really good point that you made that um, you know there's no one area that you should focus on uh, whether books about hockey like you should look outside the sport and and talk with different people that full-on approach and especially during a time like we face now there's so many opportunities whether it be webinars or um, you know, my idea behind this podcast kind of came from other podcasts I've heard in maybe not hockey operations, but different things. Uh, it's just an opportunity to gain a different perspective. And 
like you said, if it's not an exact point that you agree with, hopefully it provokes a different thought process. And a lot of times that um, learning can come from peer-to-peer -peer interaction and as well as mentors. Uh, you know, a lot of times lessons and mentors in hockey, people refer to as mentors. Sometimes it's a peer-to-peer -peer interaction. Uh, they go in hand in hand in the hockey industry. Looking back on your career, who are this, uh, some of the key mentors or peers that you've worked with and learned from? And what are some of the key lessons that you learned through those interactions? Yeah, I guess my, my two key mentors would be, um, you know, Andy Murray and Jeff Blaschel. Um, but I've had great peers along the way, too, within those same staffs, like uh, Pat Fershweiler, who's currently the associate head coach at Western Michigan, but spent uh, four years as assistant coach in Detroit. And uh, Jim Pack, who obviously we kind of covered how, my relationship with him through Grand Rapids and Korea. Um, you know, just leaning on those kinds of people for – for everything, you know, Pat Fershweiler really taught me how to watch a video. Uh, prior to, you know, spending time with him, it was just like just watch video and cut every single thing that happened, every breakout, every neutral zone, every forecheck, every. But he really taught me how to look for substance and look for the little intricacies of of an individual player's game, like where their feet are pointed, their body posture, their body positioning, and not just wasting time like oh, there's a breakout, let me hit the B button and breakout, breakout, breakout. Look for ones that are you know, really have an impact on the game or ones where there's breakdowns or you can have a teaching point. Uh, so he was phenomenal in that. Jimmy was really big. Jim Pack was really big. On, you know, I've talked a lot in this, you know, hour about relationships. He was really big in, in teaching me how the importance of that. Like he's, this is a guy that was the first ever Asian born hockey player. Uh, he played for Team Canada because he grew up in Canada. He won two Stanley Cups with the Pittsburgh Penguins. He played with Mario Lemieux, Yarmar Yager, Wayne Gretzky in LA. Like everybody. And he was such a down-to-earth person. He is a down-to-earth person. I shouldn't say was. He is a down-to-earth down uh, down person that um, really loved connecting with players. And he developed some fantastic defensemen in Grand Rapids that, that ended up playing for the Detroit Red Wings and had a good NHL career. So learning that, that from him was, was really important. Andy and, and Blash, obviously, were, were more mentors for me. Um, you know, I believe that they're, that they're also friends. And, uh, you know, these are two men that were at my wedding and kind of were there for the kind of start of my new life uh, that I really look up to, but they taught me a lot. They taught me the importance of work and what it takes to be great every single day. Uh, you know, how to deal with, you know, hard times, how to deal with good times too. Like we always talk about facing adversity, but how do you face success? Like, how do you respond to it? How do you not rest on your laurels? How do you just keep the drive to keep working? Uh, and they gave me some good piece of advice along the way too. Like Andy was really big on development, uh, not just for players, but as coaches. Like I was there, I'd mentioned earlier, I was kind of the junior coach of that staff, but he really stressed and pushed me outside of my, my comfort zone. Like he gave me responsibilities I probably wasn't ready for, but he did it purposely to get me to develop and to test myself and push myself to, to get better. Um, but he was also big on, on taking your time. Like he talked about mountain sickness and, and not going up the mountain too quickly and, and really mastering your profession before you move on and being over prepared for the next level um you know blash was really about detail and the attention to detail and making sure that you show players as much as you can not just making decisions on a gut feeling or you know on emotion after a game uh, so his detail in video sessions and one-on-one and -on -one work with players was just was phenomenal so you know it's, it's endless learning but you know those key mentors and colleagues early in my career especially, are the ones that really kind of painted the canvas uh, for me on, you know, 
what I need to expect in this career and what it takes to be great in this career. And then when I was eventually my own head coach, how I can take those lessons and make them my own and, uh, you know, kind of keep that, that learning and teaching going. But uh, yeah, I was really fortunate to work with some great men and, and win with them as well. I think it just goes to show the, the way hockey kind of works in cycles. Obviously people teach you and you teach others and, and be successful along the way. Uh, the mentor and lesson, lesson question is, is one I ask everybody and is definitely one of my favorites just because obviously uh, throughout your story, we kind of hear the names, but it's always nice to um, see those main people who really, um, you know, whatever the reason was, they saw something in you and really uh, took it upon themselves to teach you those extra lessons. And a lot of times your success, yeah, while in, in any case, it's, it's on the person themselves for putting in the hard work. Uh, it's hard to, uh, you know, not stress the fact that uh, without that guidance and with that help, you know, you may not be in the position you are today. So it's great to hear that you had those key mentors and, and learned those lessons. The final question, as I asked everybody, if you could look back to yourself, you know, maybe coming out of high school, uh, entering university or college, or maybe looking at an individual who is, you know, kind of just starting in hockey and hoping to progress to hockey operations, what is one piece of advice you would give them to be successful? Uh, yeah, oh, that's a, that's a tough question because uh, there's there's lots of pieces of advice I I give, and it'd be a lot of it would be me regurgitating, you know, things that I've been. I've been told, uh, and sometimes I never, I didn't listen to them, and I, you know, I fell victim to the consequences. But I guess the biggest thing would be really enjoy the journey, and that, you know, that's really general and broad, but it encompasses a lot of things. Like, you know, it, you're not going to become rich right off the the hop. You may not ever become rich doing this, but you're going to be rich in opportunity and experiences and relationships. So enjoy the journey of that, uh, and the work that it takes to to make that kind of impact on people day to day. Um, enjoy the journey of, of the job that you're in. Uh, you know, we're always, I think human nature is to always better ourselves and look ahead. And there's nothing wrong with that either. Like you have to have your five-year plan, 10-year plan, your goals, uh, and believe in yourself that you can be better than, than where you are. But if you're not enjoying the journey of where you're at, uh, you're never going to get to where you want to be. Uh, so, you know, treating the job that you have as the most important one is something that's critical because I've, I've failed at that at times and it's, it's really cost me, uh, you know, it's cost me relationships. It's cost me mentors. It's cost me, um, you know, just success. Right. So I think it's really important to enjoy that journey and treat the job you have as the most important one, because in that moment you're making such an impact on a group of 20 to 25, uh, athletes, um, and that's where they are in that moment too. So you need to facilitate their performance and drive their success and their confidence and make them feel like you're all in. So enjoy that, enjoy that, that moment there and, and what you're doing uh, for them. And, uh, you know, just again, just linking it to a previous question with what my mentors taught me, just when you enjoy the journey, you, you, you make sure that you're prepared, right? And you're not moving up too quickly and you're over-prepared for the next you know, the next level. Uh, so you, you enjoy the journey, you enjoy your craft and you enjoy your work and you enjoy learning. Uh, so that'll only help you moving forward. So, you know, in short, don't make it about money. Don't make it about reaching your goals. Don't make it about only about winning. Uh, don't make it about status. Just if you really love the game, uh, love coaching, love what you do every day, love the people you're around and love, you know, making an impact and continuously learning, then just enjoy it. Just enjoy that journey and don't rush it. Uh, and uh, you know things will 
things will come to fruition for you if you take that approach. And I'm still learning how to do that myself. Yeah, I think we're also learning that in a sense. And I think it's a, a great piece of advice and a great way to end an interview. Uh, Spiros, I just want to say thank you for uh, taking the time to speak with me. And like I said, I know we haven't had interaction in the past, but it means a lot that you come on here. And thank you for sharing your experience. And hopefully we'll be back in hockey soon. And I wish you all the best moving forward. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Great talking and uh, best of luck to you too next season. All right. Thank you. Take care. I'd like to thank Spiros for joining me on the podcast and talking about his experiences and career path to date. The unique nature of some of his positions and the willingness to work his way through the system was extremely interesting and eye-opening at the same time. So once again, I'd like to thank him for sharing his story. If you would like to get in touch with Spiros to discuss his experiences, I encourage you to reach out to him directly or contact HockeyMindsPodcast at Outlook.com and I can look to make that connection for you. On the next episode of the podcast, I'll be joined by Mike Oak, General Manager of the Peterborough Peets. Mike is one of the longer tenured managers in the OHL, and he has a wealth of knowledge on various aspects of the game, so you won't want to miss out on that episode on Wednesday. Once again, I'd like to thank everyone for the immense amount of support and interaction we have seen as of late. I've enjoyed every minute of the conversations, and I hope to present many more interviews in the future. As always, stay safe, and all the best.